Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. How are we doing this morning, friends? Merry Christmas, man, just a few days away, one short week away. So glad to be in church with you this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor and I'm excited to be opening God's word with you today and jumping into part four of our Advent series. And if you've been tracking with us at all over the past several weeks, we've been doing a series on this idea of arrivals, on this whole concept of arrivals. And the reality is Advent, it represents the four major themes of Christmas. Advent is just that period of time that prepares our hearts and leads us up to Christmas morning. And every week we've been focusing on one of the main themes of Advent. The first week was this reality of hope. And Pastor Dave brought an amazing word on hope, how Jesus represents the arrival of hope to the world represents the arrival of our greatest hope. We looked at the theme of joy. Last week, we looked at the arrival of peace. And then today, we're bringing it home with probably the most obvious and central theme of the entire Christmas season. Because Jesus represents, in no uncertain terms, the arrival of God's love to the world the arrival of God's love to the world. So we're gonna look at this idea of how Jesus represents the arrival of what love actually is, but more specifically, how he represents God's love to you and to me. How he represents the embodiment, the incarnation of the love of God to you and to me and to the entire world. Y'all ready for this? Let's go. Here we go. So we're starting off uh, with an illustration, and I, I want to share something. Something um, tragic has transpired recently in our neighborhood, specifically on our cul-de-sac, on our court. And I don't know if you had the privilege of growing up with something like this as a child. Um, I did. I'm so grateful for this. But as a kid, one of the greatest things to have on your street if you were growing up in a neighborhood was an empty lot. Can I get an amen, somebody? Because that empty lot was not just an empty lot. It represented all things that were awesome about childhood. It represented all things that could be adventure or imagination. It represented no parents. And all the parents were like, I'm fine that I'm not there. Go outside and play in the dirt in the empty lot. That's fine. You're not in front of technology. You're not in front of a screen. This is a win for everybody, right? At the end of our street, we had an empty lot. We have an empty lot. And it, had a few, it has a few oak trees on it, some tall grass. And it's an amazing space because it actually has a trail. It's the only connecting point for our neighborhood to the neighborhood behind us, which just so happens to be right on Folsom Lake. So the kids or whoever wants to in the neighborhood can use the empty lot as a walkthrough to Folsom Lake. So not only was it awesome for kids to play on, it was the avenue, the gateway to a whole new world for all of us. Now, a few suburbs ago when we first moved in, my kids and some of the other kids, they rallied together and they built a tree house in one of the oak trees in the, uh, the empty lot. It was not to code, it was not built to code. 
It's a Christmas miracle that no child has broken any bones in the crashing down of this tree fort. Uh, last summer, they, they gathered up all the branches from all the trees in, in the empty lot, and they made teepees all over the place. They built a rope swing. They built a ramp on the dirt trail through the empty lot for their bikes. I mean, this place was incredible, and they did what all kids do when they have something that's just so near and dear to their heart. They gave this place a name, and they affectionately named it The Dirt Dump. That's right, the dirt dump. And, you know, there's some dirt, but I, I think if I love someplace so much, I'd think of a better name for it than the dirt dump, but the dirt dump fits just perfectly, and these kids love the dirt dump. Now, here's the problem. About, I, I think it was actually two weeks ago, we were awakened at 5 a.m. by the sound of this huge semi-truck pulling onto our street, and I, I kind of open my window and I look out and it's carrying tons of heavy construction machinery, front end loaders, bobcats, all the stuff. And I just knew deep down, I thought, man, that's, this is the beginning of the end of the dirt dump. It's about to get a lot dirtier, but pretty soon they're not going to be able to play at the dirt dump anymore. And sure enough, all the heavy construction machinery was dropped off at the end of the street. And the very next day, all the neighbors and all the kids woke up to this sign. I know, right? So, and look, I don't, I don't blame the people. I get it. You know, there's going to be construction. You don't want kids running around on a construction site. I get it. But, you know, the kids saw the sign at the end of the street. They came running home in distress. And they say they weren't even worried about the no trespassing because kids don't get that anyways. They're going to trespass wherever they want. They wanted to know, what does private property mean? What does that mean, mom and dad? Well, it means somebody bought the dirt dump. What do you mean somebody bought the dirt dump? It belongs to me. I built my house there. I put a rope swing there. There's three TPs on that dirt dump with my name on it. It even has my bike ramp. That's my property, mom and dad. Who could buy my dirt dump? And there was this reality kind of sinking into their heart that, well, in fact, it wasn't their property. They didn't own it. They were playing on it, and it was awesome while it lasted, but now it will be no more, and pretty soon there will be a fence around the dirt dump. There will no longer be access to the lake, and it was a dark and sad day for our cul-de-sac and for the kids on the street. And I'm sure they're amazing people. This is no knock on whoever the new neighbors are, but it was, it was a... Uh, a really eye-opening moment for my kids. And I thought about this because we all know, we know what it feels like to have new neighbors. We know what it feels like to be the new neighbor if you've ever moved into a neighborhood. For better or worse, we know that experience. And in John chapter one, if you look at one of the central themes of the entire Christmas story, John 1.14 says it like this, the word that is Jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us, came and lived with us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I love how the message version translates this, and you've probably heard this version before, but the message says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
We saw the glory with our own eyes. We saw one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. And here's the point. Jesus did move into our neighborhoods. You know, he, he bought the empty lot at the end of the street. He moved right into where we were, into every scenario, into every experience that we've experienced as humans. He's encountered it. He's taken it on. He's fully entered the human experience. And the beautiful thing is this, the whole point of Christmas is not just that hope showed up 2,000 years ago one time, or joy showed up once in a manger, or peace was found once through his death on the cross, or that love arrived once 2,000 years ago. The whole point of Christmas is that Jesus came into the neighborhood, lived a perfect life, was the incarnation of God among man, so that he could be with us forever, so that Hope is available to us forever. Joy, peace, the unconditional love of God is available to us forever. That's the message of Christmas. And, and the beautiful thing is this. Jesus actually removed the ultimate no trespassing sign. He actually removed the no trespassing sign. Up until this point in human history, because mankind had turned our back on God, because we had turned away from God and sinned, our relationship with God was broken. And, and a, a broken, sinful person could not just casually walk into the presence of God. You can't stroll into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and just hang with God. One guy, one time a year, through exactly the right sacrifice, could go and be in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus came as a child, not only was the no trespassing sign like nobody can be near or around God, not only was it just ripped up and thrown out the window, now God was like being held by a human. God was being swaddled. He was being held. He was, he was able to be approached and embraced by any and by all. The arrival of God's love was the ultimate statement that, hey, come one, come all. Now heaven is available. Love is available. Grace is available because me, God, in the flesh, Jesus Christ has come to remove the ultimate no trespassing barrier because I'm gonna deal with your sins. I'm gonna deal with the one thing that's been separating us because I love you. And I've come for you. John 3.16. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe the most famous verse in the world. Hands down, it is the most famous verse in the world. Um, it's a Christmas verse. Think about this. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent. He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Christmas story is the story of God sending his son to earth. Why did he send him? Because he so loved the world because he so loved you. It's the whole point. 
Again, Eugene Peterson in the message, he, he captures it so well. He says, this is how much, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his only son, one, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God did, not, God did not go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without even knowing it. What do we learn about love through the life of Jesus? What do we learn about this idea that Jesus represents the arrival of God's love to the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. What do we learn about love through Jesus? Well, a lot of things, but I think the first thing we'll see today is this. Love is more than a feeling. Sing it with me. You know you want to. <laughs> more than a feeling. I'll start right there. It's an amazing song, right? That great theologian, Bradley Delp, lead singer of Boston, wrote the song, More Than a Feeling. And you know what the song's about? That love is more than a feeling. And he realized he had more than just feelings for Marianne, but when did he realize it? When she was walking away, right? <laughs> when she's walking away, when he lost it. That's when he realized love was more than a feeling. And love is more than a feeling. Think about this. Romans 5, 8 says this. Paul writes this. God demonstrates. He proves. He shows us. It's more than a feeling. He demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. 1 John three sixteen says it like this. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The point is this, love is more than a feeling. It's a laying down of one's life. It's a choosing to enter into love even with enemies, even with those that you know are against you. But I remember the first time I felt love, or maybe I'll just call it infatuation at that point in life, and it all started right here with the Nokia 5100. Look at this bad boy. Y'all remember these? Amazing, right? About $900 a minute to talk on it. And Nokia, I'll never forget, I was a senior in high school and I got my first cell phone. And I started dating this amazing woman over here on the front row. And she happened to have a Nokia 5100 too. She was a junior in high school. And um, I'll never forget, you know, we, our relationship progressed to the point where we exchanged cell phone numbers. Everyone was still talking on house phones. To hand out a cell phone number was a big deal because it was so expensive. Typically, the cell phones were reserved for like parental calls only less than 30 seconds. It's over, right? But to give another person your cell phone number was huge. Now, around that same time, there was also some new technology being added to the Nokia 5100s. We had had these on pagers before, but now it was integrated with cell phones. Mind-blowing, world-shifting technology called the text message. 
texting. You had to tap the button three times and then four times and eight times and nine, just to get the word hello out there. But we could do it, right? And I'll never forget the first text message I ever received, ever in my life. I was sitting in the fourth period class at Harrison High School as a senior, and suddenly my phone made a ding, and I was praising God that the teacher didn't hear it. I was like, man, it's never made that noise before. What does that mean? I pulled it out and I read on the screen, I, I kid you not, hey, it's Lindsay. I miss you. Hope you're having a great day. Until you've experienced a text message for the first, like, it's like a digital note from across town that just showed up in my pocket. It was incredible. I was like, whoa, I'm in love. Like, I am in love right now. This is, the feeling is amazing. Incredible. Text messaging. Nokia 5100 for the win. I mean, all the feels, all of it. And, you know, let's just fast forward about 20 years. We're married now, two kids. Now our text messages are mostly like, hey, uh, when are you getting home from work? Can you please grab some milk on your way home? Sweetheart, don't forget to pay the true up bill with PG&E at the end of this month. Some of you just got anxiety right there, I'm so sorry. As much as I'd like to tell you that every time my wife sends me a text asking me to grab dinner on the way home, that my heart just explodes with all the feelings, but it doesn't, not even close, not even close. And, and the moment that love goes from infatuation to more than a feeling, the moment that love quickly moves from this, this just, you know, euphoric sensation of just joy is when you have your first fight, is when you face your first conflict. And the truth is this, you don't really know what love is until you experience some real hardship in life, some real fights, some hard times when the money is tight and you look across the dinner table and you genuinely wonder to yourself, who is that person I married? Who is that stranger that I find myself married to now 15 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later? That right there is when love has to become more than a feeling. And you can think of it like this. In the midst of conflict and hardship, love quickly becomes more than a feeling. Love becomes a choice. Love becomes a choice. And what Christmas shows us is that God chose to give his son for you because he loves you. While you were in the midst of a massive intergalactic conflict, that's the wrong word, not, this is not Star Wars, we're talking conflict between humanity and deity called sin. While your enemies, he loves you. While you were running from him, he pursued you. While you pushed him away, he laid down his life for you. It says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for you. That's what love is. It's the willing choice at expense and cost to your own self through thick and thin. When you fully see and know the other person and say, I'm coming for you anyways. I'm gonna keep showing up. 
I'm gonna keep laying my life down. That's the message of Christmas. That's how God demonstrates his love to the world. The other thing that Christmas reminds us that it shows us is this. Some things are so important you have to say them yourself. Some things are just so important you have to say them yourself. Hebrews 1 says this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You know, God said, the reason I'm moving into the neighborhood, the reason I'm coming all the way to where you are is because it wasn't enough just to tell you about my love through the prophets or through Moses or through Aaron or through Joshua or through Elijah. It wasn't just enough to tell you about it through a third party. I had to demonstrate it to you. Some things in life are so important, and love being one of those things that at some point, it can't just be experienced through somebody else. You have to encounter it and experience for yourself. You have to encounter it and experience it for yourself. You have to know what it means to care for someone so deeply that you're willing to lay down your life for them and serve them and stay committed through it all, and they the same for you. Love is not just something that you can know cognitively. It has to be known in every part of your will and every part of your emotions and every part of who you are as a person. I love it. In elementary school, my kids are going through this right now. A boy who will not be named who happens to live in my house um, <laughs> happened to have a crush on a particular girl this year. So he enlisted... Um, his sister, who also lives in my house. And he said, hey, I need you to write a note for me. And the note is gonna say something like this. They were really working hard on the language. Um, something along the lines of, I like you, do you like me? Check yes, no, maybe. <laughs> and then he goes, wait, wait, hold on. He looked at it, he read it over and over. He goes, hold on. Erase the check boxes next to no and maybe. I don't want to give her any options, right? <laughs> Let's just erase those check boxes so she has one option. I, I actually don't know how it went. They wouldn't tell me what happened next. Um, but there is a point in life where the check yes or no or send a letter through a friend doesn't work anymore, right? Like if I asked my wife to marry me, by calling a good buddy and saying, hey, would you mind showing up with some flowers at Lindsay's house and just uh, kind of relay this message to her? Hey, Jonathan really loves you. Here's some flowers. Here's a ring from Jonathan. Um, he wants to know if you'll marry him. That wouldn't go so well. There's a point in life where you actually have to demonstrate it. Imagine if, if I'm married to my wife, but I'm never around. I never see her ever. 
and I just send her letters or messages or text messages or even phone calls saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I never serve her, I don't provide for her, I don't demonstrate my love for her, I don't show any attention or care or time for her or the family. If there's nothing to back up the words, eventually the person begins to disbelieve the truth of what you're saying. Some things will never be understood unless it is personally said and personally experienced. I could tell you all day about the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know. I could, but if you've never been, I could explain it to you and say, it's stunning. It's this massive crack in the core of the, the Earth's crust or in the shell of the Earth's crust goes down a mile. There's a river at the bottom. It's so far across, you can barely see the other side. More colors than you can imagine. It is one of the most stunning places on the earth. And if you've never been there and you've never experienced it for yourself, the most you can do is say, man, that sounds awesome. I can kind of picture it, but it's an experience that you've never had and that you'll never fully understand until you, until you stand on the edge of it. And it's the same with God's love. God said, look, it's not enough just for me to speak through prophets, preachers, teachers, other people. I gotta show you myself. I gotta say it for myself. You have to encounter it for yourself. God, this is what it says in Romans 5, God demonstrated his love for us. He put his life where his promises were. He demonstrated his love for us. By this we know love, that he, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his life for us. It was a demonstration. It was God backing up everything he had promised with his actual life. And friends, I think in the Christmas season, one of the devil's key strategies one of the enemy's number one goals for your life is to make the whole Christmas message so familiar, is to make this whole idea of God's love so familiar that you don't even see it. That it doesn't cause any awe or wonder in your soul anymore. That you look at this perfect gift of Jesus Christ and you just say thank you, but it doesn't move you. You see, love is more than a feeling, but love will always come with feelings as well. There will always be a sense, an experiential sense of affection for God if the gospel has landed on your life. And I think one of the devil's primary strategies is to make us so familiar with the message of Christmas that we miss it. I'm reminded of the very first time I went to London. And the very first time I saw St. Paul's Cathedral. And I just remember rounding, we were, we were doing a walking tour of downtown London. I remember rounding this corner and it was just sitting there. This massive cathedral was sitting there in the middle of the square. And I couldn't take my eyes off it. I crossed the street, I stood in front of it, and there were probably 40 or 50 people around me who were all doing the same thing that I was doing, just, just wanting to take it all in, blown away by what we're seeing, in awe of what we're seeing, shocked by what we're seeing. And yet all around us, 
were people that were just walking by it like it was no big deal, like it wasn't one of the architectural wonders of the world. They'd seen it every day. They worked across the street. They worked one block over. They were just there to grab some food and head them back to work. They didn't even look up from Facebook or Instagram. They kept scrolling and walking. And there's a few of us standing there just, just blown away by what we're looking at. Amazing. And sometimes my fear is that we become so familiar with the message of Christmas, so familiar with the message of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave himself for you, that we no longer stop and just look at it. We're just walking by in the busyness of our life. We're just hustling to get the next present, to put up the lights, to create moments and memories, and all those things are good. But friends, sometimes you just gotta pause and look at it and remind yourself that this was the turning point in human history that this was the greatest act and expression of love the world has ever seen. You have to fight against the apathy in your own soul. You have to fight to keep the wonder alive, the joy alive, and you do that by getting into his word, by praying, by showing up to church, by singing about it. I'll invite the keys to come out with this, and we'll close with this. Final question, final point. Why did God choose to appear as love? Why did he arrive as love? Why is Jesus the incarnation of love? Why does it say in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Jesus was the incarnation, the arrival of God's love to the world. The only attribute of God that is actually used in scripture to define who God is, his character and his nature, is his love. Nowhere in scripture does it say God is wrath, God is judgment. It says God is love. There's another famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse four, it's all about love. Maybe you've heard it at a wedding. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. But imagine replacing the word love with God. God is love, right? And love is this. So we know God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. He came to serve and to lay down his life. God is not irritable or resentful. Someone needs to hear that today. God is not resentful or irritated at you right now. Even though you've got some broken pieces in your life, he's patient, he's kind towards you. God is love and this is what love is life. like. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. God endures all things for the sake of love. God's love never ends. I think the reason God chose to appear as love, as the incarnation of love, as the one who walked around healing the sick, befriending sinners, drawing the outcast in, being the representation of God's love wherever he went, I believe 
he chose to show up as the incarnation, the embodiment of love, is because there is no stronger motivator on the planet than love. Fear can get you to do some pretty crazy things. Anger can get you to go pretty far in life. Rules can cause external conformity in your life, but nothing will absolutely capture your heart, completely enthrall your life, and send you on a new trajectory like love. Nothing will motivate you or change you from the inside out like love. And so God knew this. He knew that love breaks down every barrier, breaks down every wall, and it creates joyful obedience without fear or obligation. It is a greater motivator than anything else on planet Earth. And here's the message of Christmas. The arrival of God's love, which changed the world forever, is not a one-time thing. It keeps arriving, it keeps showing up in our life after every failure, around every turn, around every curveball that we never saw coming. God is not afraid of your mess. He is not afraid of the broken pieces of your life. He wants to show you and demonstrate his love for you by reminding you every day, I hung on the cross for you. I dealt with that once and for all for you. One day you'll be with me forever in glory. One day I'm coming back to remake all things, new heavens and a new earth. My love, God would say, is never conditional. It's a voluntary sacrifice that you didn't earn. Friends, none of us love perfectly, but every single one of us needs to know that we're perfectly loved. We need to know that we are perfectly loved loved. Amen. Friends, this is the arrival of love. This is Christmas. And my prayer for all of us, even as we close by taking communion together, is that we would not forget the love of God this season. And how his love first showed up as a newborn child in a manger, but also how his love ultimately demonstrated itself to us by dying on a cross as our perfect savior. And that's what communion represents. It represents the greatest sacrifice the world has ever seen. God dying for you because he loves you. And friends, before we take communion, I just wanna, I wanna exhort you. I, I think many of you in this room, you know the message of God's love. You've heard this before, but you have a friend or a neighbor You have somebody on your street. You have a family member who has either rejected this or hasn't heard this before. And the easiest invite all year is Christmas Eve. And so I wanna encourage you, even as you take communion and you thank God for what he's done for you, I want you right now to think about who are you inviting? Who are you bringing with you next week to our Christmas Eve gatherings? Who are you bringing with you next year as we go back into two services so they can hear about the love of God, the life-changing love of God through Jesus Christ? Let's pray and take communion. Lord, we thank you so much for your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the arrival of love in Jesus that we get to celebrate again this Christmas. 
And Father, we pray for those in our lives who need to hear about this. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you would give us the courage, the boldness to invite them to join us this year. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name and everyone said, amen. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.